Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 42A, The Emirate of Granada. The story of the Emirate of Granada brings us to a place in history which is at the end of a period called the Reconquista. The Reconquista is a retrospectively named period in history of the Iberian Peninsula, which is the home of today's countries, Portugal and Spain. Reconquista is the Spanish word for reconquest, and this refers to the Christian reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula from Muslim occupiers, so it is a romanticism of Christian victory. In reality, there were much deeper politics between all of the many nation-states that came and went during this period, so it was a simple case of two ideologies at war with each other throughout the historical period. The process of reconquest took place between the 8th century and the 15th century, so not too far away from 8 centuries. The Iberian Peninsula was dominated by the Romans, following the expulsion of the Carthaginians during the 3rd century BCE, and remained under Roman control until the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century. It was at this point that the Germanic peoples called the Visigoths swept into the Iberian Peninsula, a land that they had helped the Romans to defend against its enemies until the Visigoths realised that they were the superior partner in the relationship. The Romans fell away into obscurity and the Visigoths moved in. The Visigoths, unlike the Romans, had not been Christianised at this stage. That would come a century later, at the end of the 6th century. The Visigoths continued to dominate the Iberian Peninsula until the beginning of the 8th century, when an invasion came from over the Strait of Gibraltar from Africa. The invasion came from the rapidly expanding Umayyad Caliphate, who originated in the Middle East and conquered all of North Africa. The Umayyads were responsible for the most significant initial expansion of Islamic peoples. Islam had emerged in the previous century from the Hejaz 
in the Arabian Peninsula before its rapid expansion brought it to the Strait of Gibraltar. The Visigothic Kingdom seemed apparently to be fragmented by civil conflict when the Umayyads crossed the strait and they were able to conquer vast swathes of Visigothic lands with alarming success. The last remaining bastion of Visigothic resistance was in the lands of what would become the Kingdom of Asturias. Iberian Peninsula history may have turned out a lot different had the Umayyads been able to conquer this last pocket of Visigothic resistance on the northern coast of the landmass. The Umayyads would establish a breakaway caliphate centred on the city of Cordova, in the centre of the peninsula. In the meantime, the Christian kingdom of Asturias expanded and devolved, which marks the beginning of the emergence of Castile, Leon and Portugal. The Christian kingdoms of Navarre and Aragon emerged from the southwards expansion of the Franks into the peninsula. The Caliphate of Cordova collapsed at the start of the 11th century and now the peninsula was a patchwork of Christian kingdoms in the north and Muslim taifas in the south, all with their own political agendas and all with their independent alliances. We could try to make more of the significance of the religious identity of the states at this point, but the reality was that this was still a time before the Crusades, and all of the Iberian states, whether Christian or Muslim, were taking care of their own independent interests, and may just as likely enter an alliance or make war with states of the alternative religion as they were to ones with their shared religion. The crowns of Castile and Leon were intertwined with each other and not always with a positive relationship. This did create a united realm though that would become quite powerful and influential, taking control of Toledo, pushing the Muslim realms into the far south of the peninsula. The majority of Iberian lands were now Christian for the first time since the Umayyad invasion. With the comparative weakness and disjointedness of the Muslim taifas, this opened the door for powerful Moroccan dynasties to invade the south and subjugate the helpless taifas. The threat of these powerful dynasties rallied the Christian kingdoms into unlikely alliances with each other to combat this common threat. This was the age of the Crusades, and this was significant in context of the backlash against the Moroccan dynasties, firstly the Almoravids and then the Almohads. The ability for Christian kingdoms to appeal to the Pope for help against non-Roman Catholic peoples meant that Christians would travel from all over Europe to join in the battles against their enemies, and this was a major help in fencing off the north of the Iberian Peninsula from the Moroccans. When the Almoravids weakened, the Almohads took control of their lands and replaced them, beginning a new wave of war against the Christian kingdoms, 
which reached a climax at the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa at the start of the 13th century. The Almohad suffered a crushing defeat that would open the gateway for the Christian nations to achieve total reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula from Muslim occupants. It would still be many generations before this prospect became a reality though. Before we go any further, let's clarify a few terms that are frequently used by historians when generalising the politics of the Reconquista. Al-Andalus is a general term to describe the area of land controlled by Muslim caliphates, taifas and dynasties throughout the Reconquista. I don't mind using this term too much because it can simplify discussing the Reconquista geographically. Another term which is frequently used is the term Moor when describing people as the Moors. Those of you who frequently listen to my podcasts may have noticed that I deliberately avoid using this term. It's the same reason why I avoid using the word Saracen. Both of these terms refer to Muslims, with Saracen essentially describing any Muslim enemy of the Christians during the Crusades in the Holy Land, and Moors used to describe any Muslim occupant of the Iberian Peninsula during the Reconquista. The term Moor is derived from the demonym of the people who originally came from Mauritania, the area of North Africa opposite the Iberian Peninsula. Using the term Moor is a general term used by Europeans to describe any Muslim occupant of the peninsula without regard for their political designation or ethnic background. It could be likened to calling all of the Christian occupants of the peninsula Germanics, for example. So this is the reason why you don't hear me use the term often. The Collapse of the Almohads The defeat of the Almohads at the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa sent the Almohads in Al-Andalus spiralling into decline. Gone was the promise of fruitful success in the peninsula following potential great victories over their enemies and here was the reality of future uncertainty and lack of confidence in central control. Rebellions within Al-Andalus rose up and sought to destabilise the Almohads at a time where they could ill afford it alongside their powerful Christian neighbours looking to take advantage of the disunity. One of the rebels was a man called Ibn Hud, who claimed descent from the Hudid dynasty, who had previously ruled the Taifa of Zaragoza, which was in the far north of the peninsula, and was an area that had fallen under the control of Aragon. Ibn Hud was popular in Al-Andalus and managed to win victories over other Taifas. However, when the Castilians engaged his troops, he suffered defeat and the fickle support of Al-Andalus started to wane. This is when a man called Ibn al-Akhma started to gain some momentum in his bid to challenge Ibn Hud's rule. Ibn al-Akhma even assisted the Castilians in their conquest of Cordoba, 
moving the city into Christian hands for the first time since the Muslim conquest. Ibn al-Ahmar would eventually take the city of Granada and secure this as his capital city in 1237, while Ibn Hud was assassinated the following year. Ibn al-Ahmar ruled Granada as its first sultan, named Muhammad, and he would move to secure a large area of influence along the south coast of the Iberian Peninsula. Muhammad was the founder of the Nasrid dynasty, which was the dynasty that ruled the Emirate of Granada throughout its existence. There was no doubt in the mind of the Sultan Muhammad that keeping the peace with the Castilians was always going to be tricky. For the Castilians, they really didn't mind Muhammad creating a realm centred on Granada as long as he was subservient to them when the occasion fitted the Castilians. For Muhammad, there was no point in unnecessarily provoking the powerful Castilians into a war with him, but he still had the Granadan interest to protect. During the reign of Muhammad, the Aragonese, the Castilians and the Portuguese advanced southwards to conquer the last remaining Muslim taifas that emerged following the fall of the Almohads, and this left the Emirate of Granada as the only remaining Muslim stronghold on the Iberian Peninsula. The decline of the Almohads caused chaos in their homelands in the modern country of Morocco, and the dynasty of the Marinids, who had been in Almohad service, rose up and challenged the Almohads, eventually overthrowing them and taking control of the Moroccan lands in North Africa. So the Granadans saw some value in developing diplomatic relations with the Marinids so that the precarious position that they were in against the Castilians could potentially be counterbalanced. However, the situation, which remained the general status quo between the Granadans and the Castilians throughout the remainder of the 13th century, the 14th century and much of the 15th century, was that the Granadans were expected to pay a tribute to the Castilians to prevent trouble or conquest. And in the meantime, the Granadans were able to exercise a degree of autonomy while the Castilians dealt with more pressing issues on their other borders. The Alhambra. With the capital of the Emirate established at the city of Granada, it would make sense for Sultan Muhammad to fortify the city. The city had had previous fortifications, so Muhammad would be able to utilise the spaces already in use as the city's defences and the high point of the city could be used as the site for the construction of a palace complex which could act as a royal residence overlooking the city of Granada itself. Even driving up to the Alhambra today you are treated to some breathtaking views of the Andalusian landscape and it is soon very obvious why Muhammad selected this for his royal residence and capital city fortress. Muhammad's successors would enhance this great site, but it was Muhammad who turned the existing fortress into a place for his royal court. The Islamic world on a global level had been a place of great academia and learning. 
Al-Andalus was no exception to this and when Islam was introduced to the Iberian Peninsula, the city of Cordoba became a centre for Islamic academia. But now the Reconquista was now advancing into its later stages, the city of Cordoba had been lost and it was up to the Granadans to continue the Islamic academic traditions. The skills known were put to use in the construction of the Granadan Alhambra and it is noted for being one of the greatest examples of Islamic medieval architecture. The name Alhambra refers to the Arabic name given to it to describe the red tint of its masonry. The redness was not a deliberate colouration. It was just the tint of the clay from the site that was used for the construction of the walls. Cool breezes from the Sierra Nevada mountains took the edge off the hot climate of the region and fertile land produced good yields. Timeline of the Emirate The Sultan Muhammad died in the year 1273 after falling from his horse. He had reached his late 70s. The Emirates always experienced political tensions with the Castilians despite the political arrangements. Even civil conflict within Castile saw the Granadans being drawn into supporting one party or another. The Granadans themselves would even have to deal with their own internal issues with the Malagueños, those being from the city of Malaga to the west of the city of Granada rebelling against the emirate. Despite this, the emirate remained intact. The Granadans were unable to prevent the Marinids from Morocco establishing a presence at the southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula where they could control the Strait of Gibraltar. However, the relationship that they garnered with the Marinids allowed them to become involved in the gold trade from West Africa, which aided them in keeping the peace with the Castilians. Despite the Islamic commonality between the Marinids and the Granadans, tensions always existed similarly to how they did between the Granadans and the Castilians. For the Granadans, they would need to try to empower themselves so that they were not dependent on paying tribute just to survive and they would make several attempts to occupy the city of Ceuta in the Marinid north coast of Africa. This would have given the Granadans a degree of influence over the sea trade routes of the Strait of Gibraltar but the Granadans found it difficult to hold on to the city for any meaningful length of time. Existence was a challenging game of diplomacy for the Granadans, who would try to keep all their powerful neighbours happy. At any time, the Granadans would need to choose their side when important conflicts took place between the Christian kingdoms and the Marinid kingdom of Fez, especially over things such as the control of the Strait of Gibraltar, which was on the doorstep of the Granadans. Lack of involvement was not always an option. The Granadans chose to support the Marinids at a key moment when the Castilians decided that they wanted to gain control of the Strait of Gibraltar after Marinid aggressions in the southern tip of the peninsula during the 1330s. 
the resulting Battle of Rio Salado saw the Marinid-Granadan alliance run into a powerful Christian coalition aided by a call to crusade by the Pope. The Christian victory saw the Marinids expelled from the Iberian Peninsula, never to return. The Castilians used this as an opportunity to take control of some of the Granadan border towns, further diminishing their realm. The gold trade from Africa enabled the Emirate of Granada to stay prosperous and more elaborate building works were constructed in the city of Granada and especially in and around the Alhambra. Many refugee Muslims from lands formerly part of Al-Andalus and now claimed by Christian kingdoms found sanctuary in Granada and the population of the city boomed. The city of Granada was now one of the largest urban populations in Europe, competing with the likes of Venice and Genoa, the latter of which enjoyed a healthy gold trade relationship with Granada. However, things would change in the 15th century as the Portuguese became more powerful and decided to impose themselves on the battle for trade rights in the western Mediterranean. They seized control of the African city of Ceuta and started involving themselves in the gold trade of the Mediterranean, leaving the Granadans with a lower share of the goods. With a lower share of the goods, there would be less surplus from which to pay the expected tribute to the Castilians. This would make the Granadans more vulnerable. Decline The catalyst that started the permanent alteration of the political situation in the Iberian Peninsula was the political marriage between Isabella, the sister of King Henry IV of Castile, with Ferdinand, the son of King John II of Aragon. On Henry IV of Castile's death, Isabella would be named as the Queen of Castile. The Kingdom of Portugal opposed Isabella's succession, which led to a period of political tension between the two kingdoms, especially as Portugal was threatening to monopolise sea trade routes along the northwest coast of Africa, something that would be unpopular with the Castilians. Of course, Queen Isabella would be supported by her husband Ferdinand until the Portuguese challenge had been put down. Ferdinand would ascend to the throne of Aragon shortly afterwards, ruling as King Ferdinand II, and it would not be long before the two monarchs announced a personal union between the two kingdoms, something that would evolve over time to become one kingdom called Spain. Queen Isabella of Castile was a very pious lady, while her husband, King Ferdinand II of Aragon, was a military man. Queen Isabella was keen to enforce the forced conversion of Jews within her lands to Catholicism, but there was a suspicion that those Jews who converted were doing so superficially by stating that they had converted, but essentially lying and continuing to observe Judaism. The Pope would select the Dominican friar Tomás de Torquemada to be the Grand Inquisitor. This position was granted with the intention that Torquemada would seek those who claimed conversion and hadn't 
and see to it that they be punished. And this could even result in execution by burning at the stake. We more familiarly know this establishment as the beginning of the infamous Spanish Inquisition. The emergence of the Spanish Inquisition was a huge concern for any non-Christians and the Sultan of Granada, Abul Hassan Ali, would not want to wait to find out what this aggressive Christian coalition had in store for the Islamic Emirate of Granada. In 1477, those tributes that Granada had been regularly paying to Castile suddenly stopped. Abul Hassan understood that this was tantamount to a declaration of hostility towards the Catholic monarchs, and so he fearlessly planned for military aggression, while telling the Catholic ambassadors to tell their monarchs that those Granadan sultans who willingly paid tribute were now dead. At this point, there was no firm indication that the Catholic monarchs had any intention of the complete conquest of Granada, however. It would be four years after the tribute refusal that Sultan Abul Hassan Ali launched a surprise attack on the city of Zahara de la Sierra across their western border. This city had once belonged to the Granadans but was now occupied by Christian residents. Abul Hassan's army scaled the walls of the city and attacked the city as it slept. Abul Hassan scored a great victory over the city and in the aftermath left a garrison in the city while taking any surviving residents back to Granada enslaved. The citizens of Granada were quite alarmed to witness this, fearing for the repercussions that they would face for this act of aggression. It wouldn't be long before the Castilians led by Rodrigo Ponce de Leon, who was based in the city of Cadiz, led an army into the emirate and captured the fortress town of Alama de Granada, which put a Castilian force within striking distance of the capital city itself. If Sultan Abul Hassan Ali's popularity in Granada was in any way diminished by the aggressive stance against the Castilians, then his choice to abandon his wife to marry a woman called Isabella, the daughter of a Castilian nobleman, would make things even worse. Isabella was actually captured by the Granadans during the previous decade and had lived as a slave at the Alhambra when she captured Abul Hassan's attention. He convinced her to convert to Islam where she would take the name Zoraya before becoming the new wife of the Sultan. He abandoned his first wife Aisha al-Hurra who was declared to be a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, and this was seen by many as an unacceptable act. Supporters of Aisha aided a rebellion against Sultan Abul Hassan Ali in 1482, which resulted in his deposition and replacement by his son by Aisha, Abu Abdullah. Abu Abdullah ruled the emirate as Muhammad XII, but he is also referred to in European works as Boabdil. Mohammed XII resolved to attack the Castilians who had been brutally attacking the province of Malaga, and so he did so, even with the emirate now in a civil war between the supporters of the new Sultan Mohammed XII and the supporters of his father, Abul Hassan Ali. However, the Sultan Mohammed XII was captured by the Castilians 
while campaigning in their lands and was subsequently imprisoned. Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand decided that they would entice the Sultan Mohammed XII to become their ally in order to attempt to restore the subservient relationship between Granada and Castile. With Mohammed XII now a prisoner of war, his father Abul Hassan Ali would take control of the emirate again. So Mohammed XII would be allowed to come out of captivity on the premise that he would now be attempting to retake Granada as a service to the Castilians in the hope that Granada could return to being a tributary emirate to Castile. So Mohammed XII would campaign to regain control of the emirate following his release from Castilian captivity, but he would experience defeat at the hands of his uncle, Abu Abdullah Mohammed Az-Zaghal, brother of the Sultan Abul Hassan Ali. By now the Sultan was old and weary, his eyesight failing, so his brother, the uncle of Mohammed XII, took control of the emirate as Mohammed Thirteenth, Abul Hassan Ali soon passed away, leaving Mohammed Thirteenth as the Sultan and Mohammed Twelfth as the nephew distrusted by the Granadans due to his affiliation with the Castilians. So let's try to simplify this. We now have the former Sultan, the nephew, Mohammed Twelfth trying to act on behalf of the Castilians. We'll call him by his European moniker, Boabdil, and then we have his uncle, the new sultan, ruling as Mohammed XIII, who we will call as Zaghal. The Castilians were now happy to expend their resources on chipping away at towns and cities of the emirate, and the emirate may have put up more of a fight if it had not been riddled with infighting between the supporters of Az-Zaghal and the supporters of Boabdil. When the Castilians were threatening the city of Malaga itself, the Granadans started to worry because Malaga was the second biggest city in the Emirate, so the potential loss of the city reflected badly on the current Sultan, Az-Zaghal. Az-Zaghal felt compelled to travel west from Granada to the province of Malaga to prevent the city from falling but he knew that by doing so, he would leave Granada open for Boabdil to seize control and exercise his own will. As Zaghal decided that he needed to step in and prevent the fall of the city of Veles Malaga in order to deny the Castilians a base from which to attack Malaga itself. When Azaghal arrived, he found that the residents of Beles Malaga had fled into the mountains, leaving the Castilians to occupy the city without force. Azaghal had no option but to return to Granada, but on his return he found the city gates closed and the faith of the city had crossed over to Boabdil following Azaghal's repeated failings. Once again, the political differences between Az-Zaghal and Boabdil did the cause of Malaga no favours at all, as the two sultans' forces were just as likely to battle with each other as they were to attack the Catholics. When Ferdinand and Isabella besieged the city of Malaga, the local commander Hamet el-Zegri 
repeatedly refused to surrender, choosing to rally the population of the city and bravely fight on. Eventually, after around four months, the situation became untenable as the population began to starve and the Catholics would breach the city's defences, leaving the population to have to surrender to Ferdinand's mercy. Neither Malaga nor the Emirate had the power to resist the Catholics, and the fall of Malaga marked a significant loss for the Granadans, as they had lost their second city, their biggest seaport, and now most of their fleet, cutting off the flow of supplies and resources. Despite no longer having control of Granada, Azzaghal still held lands in the east of the Emirate. With Boabdil maintaining control of the city of Granada and continuing to maintain the trust of the Catholics, it made sense for Ferdinand and Isabella to target Azzaghal's strongholds, with Azzaghal being the main Granadan threat to the Catholics. The sieges that took place in the Emirate of Granada were long and arduous and it would not always be easy for the Catholic monarchs to maintain the loyalty of their Castilian armies who at times were hungry and suffering from disease and exhaustion. The Catholic monarchs threatened any deserters with torture and execution so they would be treated no differently to heretics. As Zagal bravely attempted to resist the siege that the Catholics laid on the city of Batha, a city that was highly defensible. Had the Castilian troops not stuck to the task, then Azzaghal may have held out, but after six months of stubborn resistance, Azzaghal found that he had no option but to surrender. The surrender meant that the citizens of Batha were spared expulsion and enslavement. Azzaghal was now a captive and his nephew Boabdil could breathe a sigh of relief. With his wily and relentless uncle and enemy out of the picture, Boabdil could now look forward to receiving his rewards for his loyalty to the Catholic monarchs. The problem was that these rewards were not delivered. King Ferdinand demanded that Boabdil surrender the city of Granada in exchange for the lands that had been promised to him. While Boabdil may have considered this demand, the citizens of Granada certainly would not, and they rose up behind a brave military commander called Musa ibn Abi al-Hassan, who was ready to stand up for the city against the Catholic monarchs. Since the fall of Azzaghal, the Granadan civil war was over and the lands around Granada were fertile. So in the year 1490, King Ferdinand instructed his troops to destroy the lands around the city, denying the population of Granada their harvest. This was too much for Boabdil, who finally conceded that he would need to fight for his nation. International appeals to other nations appeared to be fruitless and no supplies could reach Granada as much of the coast was now controlled by the Castilians. Despite the intentions of Boabdil, alongside the commander Musa and others among the population, King Ferdinand commanded his knights not 
to retaliate the goading of the Granadans, who would dare to attack individuals in the Castilian camp while they slept. Ferdinand was determined to stick to the plan that he had already started by destroying the harvests of the Granadans. His intention was to starve Granada into submission. A brief drive westwards from the city of Granada today on the Autovia A Nueve Dos He will take you to a town called Santa Fe. This town was built by King Ferdinand as a settlement for his army while the siege of Granada was taking place. After eight long months, the Granadans were beginning to realise that their resistance was futile and Boabdil wanted to surrender. Musa was having no part of it. He donned his armour, mounted his horse and rode out into the mass of Castilian enemies and he would never be seen again. Ferdinand and Isabella prepared a surrender document late in the year 1491 and Boabdil would be asked to sign it. The document is called the Treaty of Granada and you may be surprised to find out that it was a very tolerant document. It would look to preserve the rights of Muslims and leave them free to practice their faith. Any attempt to disrespect their faith would be viewed upon as a criminal act. Despite the words of the treaty, the reality was different. When the treaty came into legal effect on the 2nd of January, Castilians would enter the city and take control of the Alhambra. Later that year, Boabdil would be exiled from the city and is likely to have ended up setting sail for North Africa, where very little evidence of his subsequent life and death exists. As Sakal before him had also set sail for North Africa after abandoning the lands offered to him by the Catholic monarchs during the Granada War, but it is said that he encountered an ally of Boabdil who blinded him before his health deteriorated and he died. Muslim rebellions later in the 490s saw Isabella revoke many of the tolerant laws laid out in the Treaty of Granada and so any remaining Muslims were commanded to convert to Christianity or leave. Some converted, some left for North Africa, others practised Islam away from the public eye. Any Muslims still practising could risk being slain where they stood. Gone was the religious tolerance of the treaty. So 1492 marked the end of the existence of the Emirate of Granada, now absorbed into Castile. And with the personal union between Castile and Aragon, the map recognises for the first time a united territory that would go on to become the country of Spain. The next episode in the chronological series of the History of the World podcast will be episode 43 on the Magna Carta. Now this episode that you're listening to right now was recorded in May of 2023, but to listen to the episode on Magna Carta, uh, just go back to January 2023.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the Emirate of Granada. And it was a special episode commissioned by History of the World podcast Illuminati member David Hannon. David, you qualified for the privilege of selecting a subject for an episode and here it is. So thank you very much. A fascinating episode and and a detailed look at the end of the Reconquista. Now, uh, if you enjoy the podcast and you want to support the podcast, then please visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you do so, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and qualify for all sorts of wonderful gifts and rewards and uh, this week we welcome into the history of the world podcast illuminati paul weeks so thank you very much paul and welcome in and uh, you'll surely be uh, getting an email from me uh, as soon as you qualify for those rewards Uh, if you want to access bonus material and uh, you want to listen to the podcast ad-free, then you can subscribe to the pot- uh, to the podcast on Spotify. Listener messages and reviews. Jeremy Chamberlain wrote in this week and said, Hey Chris, it's Jeremy. Uh, it's Jeremy. I'm still here listening to your podcast. I just wanted to let you know that I really enjoy your summary episodes, volume three. Honestly, I was thinking to myself, Do I need to listen to the summary? Because I just listened to 70 episodes plus, but I wanted uh, uh, for you to let others know through the shout out that the summary episodes are amazing. You do introduce new topics and they wrap everything up nice for your brain to munch on. Also, your maps on volume four are an improvement. Keep up the good work, mate. Well, quite embarrassing really, isn't it? The maps of volume four have sort of, grinded to a halt haven't they so I do need to pick the ball up again and start uh, start doing some work don't I so but uh, thank you uh, ever so much uh, Micah has written in and has put hi Chris uh, this message is bittersweet but I'll say the good stuff first yours is easily the best podcast I've ever listened to and since the years I started listening I feel indefinitely more knowledgeable and interested in a diverse range of historical topics. I studied a single unit of world history at university close to 20 years ago and have been interested in how it all fits together ever since. Being able to follow the story from Australopithecines to the Normans is amazing. And your attitude and delivery makes it so accessible and interest, uh, sorry, so accessible and entertaining. I also have to say that the high reverb section titles are iconic and should be heritage listed. Uh, Now that's out of the way, the less good, and for this I have to take particular 
blame myself. I was a bit disappointed to hear ads in recent episodes, but I entirely understand and, of course, see that as reasonable. I'd love to see you handsomely rewarded for so much hard work that all your fans have benefited from so much. And here's where the blame falls on me. I am guilty of being uh, the old John, join the Illuminati any day now camp. So I can't rightfully expect you not to seek compensation somewhere else, can I? That's not the real problem, though. You may not be aware and you might even hold that you can't change what the ads playing with your podcast are promoting. The ads are for gambling. Maybe you weren't conscious of the impact that gambling has on so many people's lives and just how evil it is. Gambling ruins lives and the only reason the ads uh, I'm getting aren't illegal is because of the stranglehold the gambling industry has on uh, legislature in my country. The gambling lobby here in Australia is very similar in its power and tactics to the NRA in the US. So please take a look into the gambling lolly, uh, lobby in Australia and come to your own conclusions. But whatever you decide, there is no way I can support your podcast while these ads are running. I find it difficult now to even listen to them. If you do decide to refuse payment from the gambling industry, please let me know. I'll be able to listen to my favourite podcast again and I'll even join the Illuminati. You have my word. So thanks again for your great work. Still your fan, Micah. Uh, well, thank you, Micah. Um, Listen, I, I don't think I need to really um, look into it too deeply. I, I, I wasn't aware that there were gambling adverts uh, operating as I uh, as they're not listed, but um, I don't think that they're appropriate for the podcast. And I have um, requested that all um, adverts linked to gambling and uh, also politics are removed from uh, the listing. So you should never hear uh, an ad for gambling or um, indeed for politics going forward. So thank you, Michael. I think you've raised a very valid point and uh, I'm much happier now that those ads have been um, refused. So uh, no, no problem at all. No problem whatsoever. Um review this week um we got a two star review two out of five um from cromwell itunes in the usa but um i'm sorry to be negative it's just that i came to question the reliability of this podcast early on first the podcast makes several references to charles darwin claiming that humans came from monkeys no he did not say anything of the kind ever it's a very uneducated thing to say. And monkeys are simians and the last common monkey ape ancestor was more than 25 million years ago. It's So it's just silly. I still hung in there for a few episodes, but a few other things seemed a bit suspect. However, the host may be a true expert on other things. I just couldn't trust it. Um, thank you very much. I think, um, I think this whole thing about Charles Darwin claiming that humans came from monkeys is is quite controversial really because um i think i think the way that i've presented it in the episode is is not is probably not a very clever way for me to do it because i've i've insinuated that in his book um that he did say that and and he didn't say that um basically what he said was interpreted that way by the British public in the 19th century. So um, you can 
you can um, you can sort of find out from many um, writers that it's an urban myth that Charles Darwin said we descended from monkeys. But what Charles Darwin did is he wrote a book that um, that insinuated that humans and monkeys, in his opinion, came from a common ancestor. So what that meant to the general public. Uh, is that Charles Darwin was saying that we descended from monkeys. Um, monkeys, really, in terms of 19th century general knowledge, would describe any kind of uh, ape or monkey. Whereas, um, really, if we're being technical about it, the term monkey excludes apes. Um, so it's all the all the simians, if you like, we could call them. Um, the... The the ones that aren't apes are classed as monkeys, but really the you know the 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 nineteenth century world saw all of these creatures as monkeys, and the fact that Charles Darwin insinuated that um, they had a common ancestor was interpreted by the public to mean that we that we descended from monkeys, and and this is why you get the caricatures of Charles Darwin on you know his head on an on a monkey's body because that's how it was perceived. So I, I don't think I made that clear enough in the episode. And had I had done that, I mean, the point that I was trying to make was um, how Charles Darwin's uh, work was perceived. And it's more about how the public perceived it rather than exactly what Charles Darwin said. And I don't think I made that clear enough. So it's a good point. Well made. So thank you very much. Anyway, that's it for this week. Next week, it's going to be another special episode. Um, the subject of the uh, the episode next week will be on um, the mound be- builders of America. So uh, the pre-Columbian mound builders. So uh, that's a, a, a special episode commissioned by Larry Pollack. So we've got that to look forward to. Apologise for the raspiness of my voice. I've been suffering a bit this week. I, I almost um, weren't. I almost wasn't able to record this episode, so it was a, a bit a bit of a close call. But thank you if it's. I hope it's not been too uh, grating on you to to listen to this sort of raspy version of my voice. So, uh, but I hope you enjoyed the content anyway. Um, and uh, that's it for this week thank you so much for listening and uh, until we meet again uh, don't forget uh, if you want more bonus material uh, you can listen to um, uh, a special episode on how I put this episode together um, and some of the source material if you subscribe on Spotify and if you are a member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati on uh, on patreon you can listen to that but um other than that uh, that's it for this week and until next week see you again be good the history of the world podcast written and presented by chris hasler please consider making a financial contribution by going to the history of the world podcast.com website and clicking on the patreon link Email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook 
Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.